I was thinking this week, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the 1% in our uh, world today. Um, so I got a line and I did a little research to find out uh, how much do you have to make to be part of the 1%? Uh, guess what it is? If you make $47,500, anything above that, you make more than 99% of all the people in the world. So my guess is most of us sitting in here are part of the 1%. We talk about this a lot. We have won the historical lottery. Not only are we part of the 1% right now, but if you look at all of history, we have more, more resources and live far more comfortably uh, than anybody else in the rest of time. We're, we're part of the 0.01% in terms of that. So you would think if we are that blessed, we would really be good at blessing others because we're so wealthy and so rich and so fortunate, you would think we would be great at handling those resources and money and we would be incredibly generous as a people. That is not true, we are not. Listen to some of these statistics. The average American family is three weeks away from bankruptcy. Recent Gallup poll found that uh, 56% of all divorces are caused by or related to financial pressure in the home. It's so tight we're fighting about it. Four out of five owe more money than they own. Um, our desire for more is almost insatiable. 40% borrow more than they can make payments on. Last year, our debt, personal debt, in the United States hit $12.5 trillion. That's a pretty big number. Uh, we don't seem to be managing our money well, so at least you would think, well, at least we're generous. Not really. Uh, the statistics are that the average American gives somewhere around 2% of their money to charitable causes. You say, well, that's the average American. You know, in those people who are committed to Jesus, you know, people in church, they give far more than that. Well, not much. The average church member gives less than 3%. Less than 3%. We're in a series called The Art of Life. And when we were brainstorming this series, we were trying to think through those things, those areas of life where we need to develop skill if we're going to live well and wisely. And uh, in our discussion, one of the first things that came up was the whole issue of finances. So we decided we have to talk about finances. We have to talk about money. And I think in churches, we tend to shy away from that. I know pastors do because when pastors talk about money, their motives are suspect, right? I'm talking about money, so you give more to Waterstone and Waterstone pays my salary. I have kind of vested interest. Uh, that's really not my motivation this morning. I want to talk about money because I think it's incredibly important uh, to God. In fact, if you go to the scriptures, the Bible talks about money or possessions 2,172 times. Talks about money and possessions more than it does about love, three times more. Six times more than it does about prayer. Eight times more than it does about belief. Evidently, this issue of money and possessions is important to God because he's talking about it all the time. In fact, one of the people who talks about it the most in Scripture is Jesus. Uh, Jesus gave somewhere between 38 and 40 parables. Uh, 19 of those parables, almost half or half, uh, have an economic framework. In other words, they talk about money or how we handle our possessions. Jesus talks about money and possessions more than any other subject other than the kingdom of God. <laughs> and as evangelicals, we don't talk much about the kingdom of God in depth, and we don't talk much about money in depth. But we have to. We have to wrestle with this issue of money in our lives. Uh, the legend is, is that when the gospel made its way into northern Europe and Vikings became uh, converted and come to Jesus, they'd get baptized. And oftentimes when a Viking would get baptized, they'd enter the water of baptism and uh, 
as they were dunked, they would hold their swords up high so their sword never got wet. They wanted to be holy, but they didn't want holy swords. Someone has said the equivalent in our culture is we get baptized and we hold our wallets out. You know, we get dunked. We want to be holy, but we're not so sure we want our money to be holy. Here's the truth, folks. God cares about our money. And he wants us to be great with it. That's the point. I, I want us to be great with it because if you're great with their, your money, there is a freedom and a peace and a security and a lack of worry and a lack of anxiety that, that, that comes with being great with your money. And that's really the motive this morning. Uh, um, God cares about your money because God cares about you. And it's important. So we're gonna talk about money this morning. I wanna give you uh, three great truths, kind of set a theological framework in which to think about money. And then I wanna get really practical for a while and talk about five key practices. Some of this stuff is, is not gonna be new to you, but if you're like me, uh, you need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded. Uh, just as I was preparing this message, I, uh, you know, I don't have it all together in this area. I struggle just like you do to, to get a handle on my finances and handle my money well. And some of the things I'm going to share with you this morning, practices, I, I do pretty well. And boy, there's some things on this thing I'm really struggling with. So I'm, I'm just like you. So really, this isn't about me having this together. It's about here's, here's the challenge that scripture gives to us in terms of how we handle our money. So three great truths. I need a couple people to help me. I asked Keith and Gary to come up uh, to help me with this, this first great truth. Uh, so we're gonna have... Um, Got money here, 150s, ones. You're going to be our banker. Okay. Keith. So, uh, and Gary is going to be us. You get the money. All right. For now. I'm giving you $150. I'm not going to let you keep it, but I'm going to give it to you for the moment. <laughs> no, no, no. So, what do we do? We, we get money, uh, we work hard. It's given to us, and at some point, we have more than we can store under the mattress, right? So we go and we give it to our banker. So you deposit your money with the bank, right? And, and, no, it's not in your pocket. Keeping it safe. Typical banker. <laughs> I hope none of you are bankers. Sorry about that. Um, Gary, what are your expectations of your banker? Give it back when I need it. Give it back when you need it. Anything else? Pay bills when I tell them to pay bills. Pay bills when you tell them to pay bills. Uh, so there's kind of a trust relationship between you, right? right. Uh, a covenants, all right? So let's assume uh, your wife comes to you and say, Gary, we, we need to buy a new couch. You don't think that you need to buy a new couch, but she thinks you need to go buy a new couch. So what do you do? Buy you buy a new couch, that's right. <laughs> You're a smart man. That's why you're still married. <laughs> so you go down to the bank and you go up to the teller and uh, the teller sees you coming, man. She gets kind of wide eyes and you get to the, up to the teller and you say, I want, I want to get my money. And she says, uh, well, you're going to have to talk to Keith. Kyle, sorry. <laughs> Didn't I call you Keith? I did. Hi, sorry. Sorry, Kyle. You're going to have to talk to Kyle. So you go in, and, and Kyle uh, says, well, uh, things have been tight this month and really been stressed out, and uh, my wife and I really needed a break, so we used your money. We took a trip to Hawaii. Just for chance, how would that make you feel? <laughs> What's that mean? <laughs> Okay, that wasn't a heart sign. <laughs> Why? It's my money. It's, it's, your, it's not his. Right. And he used your money the way you didn't want it used. Right. So you'd be pretty ticked. It wasn't his to use. It wasn't his to use. Right, you, you, you get that. Okay, I kind of lied to you. Uh, Kyle is not the banker. 
Kyle is us. And Gary is not us, Gary is God. Use your imagination. (laughs) (laughs) And this is what happens. God entrusts us with resources. And there is a confidence that he puts in us. Thanks, guys. Give me my money back. You can sit down. You want a tip? (laughs) The first great truth is that money is a trust. Psalm 24, 1 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This notion of a trust is this idea that a person gives real or personal property to another person so that other person can handle it for the person who gave them the money. That's called a trust. And the person who is to use the money for the benefit of the person who put the money there is called the trustee. We all are trustees. Because everything we have, our money, our possessions, our houses, our cars, our clothes, all of it, our our time, all of it is God's. He's entrusted it to us. And he is placing confidence in us that we will use what he's entrusted to us the way he wants it to be used. Uh, in a way that reflects his heart. It's his money. Now, if he asks for it back, we give it back. If he asks for it to use, uh, use it in a particular way, we use it in a particular way. Why? Because we're the trustee. It's his money. We're simply a steward, a manager of what he's entrusted. You say, oh, oh, Nick, that sounds really good in theory, but here's the reality. My money that I have and the resources I have, they just didn't fall from the sky. I worked for these. Blood, sweat, and tears, man. This money is mine because I worked for it. It's not God's. Uh, You know what I think that God would say to that? I think he might say, well, I get you, I suppose, but do you know the air you breathe? It's from me. Do you know the the great mind you have and the incredible talents you have that you use in your job to make all your money? Do you know where those came from? Me. Do you know the reason you live today and have won a historical lottery rather than being born 1,200 years ago in the middle of Mongolia? You know why? It's because of me and my grace and my goodness to you. So you may think it's yours, but if you begin to think a little deeper, you begin to realize, oh wait, this really is a gift and it's not mine. All you have is not yours. All you have is God's. And that has huge implications. Huge implications. For, for one, it means that everything we do with our resources has a spiritual dimension to it. What we save, what we give, what we spend has a spiritual dimension to it. And two, it means that someday, someday, we will have to give an account, right? Because it wasn't ours, it was his. Now that's a foundational truth that affects everything we do with our money. Critical to understand. Second truth, not only is money a trust, but scripture tells us, and this is interesting, that money is also a false god. This is a fascinating uh, statement by Jesus. He says that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, we all believe this verse up to that point, right? Uh, We can't serve two. We, We understand this notion that God has an exclusivity about him. 
Uh, he wants our ultimate allegiance and ultimate allegiance can only be given to one. So we, we get that. You can't serve two masters. Where we begin to disbelieve it is in the next statement. He applies it. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. And you say, wait a second. <laughs> I can serve God and money. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't, which is really strange because the implication is what Jesus is saying is the reason you can't is because money is a competing God. And it's fascinating in this text, Jesus uses this word mam and it gets translated money. But if you go back into the Semitic language, what you discover is it's a personal name. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying that, that money is not simply a thing. It is a spiritual force. And it uses, it has spiritual sway on our lives. And, and God is saying, look, you, you, you can't serve me and money at the same time. And you go, well, why? Why? Because all of us try, right? <laughs> why can't you serve God and money at the same time? Because what money does is it tempts us. It tempts us to see it and to look to it to give us the things that only God can give. The things that only God can provide. Think about it. We, we use our money and one of the things we use our money for is to give us security, right? We save it so we can feel secure. But you know, security doesn't come from the size of your bank account or the breadth of your investments. None of that will happen when you face, will help you when you face death. Uh, because security isn't found in your money or your stuff. The only place you find ultimate security and the only one who has power over death and life is God himself. We look for our money, what? To, to give us happiness and pleasure. Now, now it's, it's a, a substitute, it's an imitation. Ultimately, it's not a very good imitation. I mean, money can bring you pleasure for a moment, but money can't bring you ultimate joy and happiness because ultimate joy and happiness is only found in God. And if you're looking for your money and your stuff to give you joy and happiness, you're worshiping an idol because you're giving it the place that God deserves in your life. We, we use money to give us significance, right? Because we think our importance is measured by the amount of resources we have, the number of digits in our salary, the amount we have in our portfolio. And that's a lie. You're, you're not more valuable because you have more stuff or a bigger salary. <laughs> in God's eyes, you're no different than anybody else. What gives us value ultimately is not our stuff and our resources and our money. What gives us value is that we're created in his image and infused with intrinsic value by him. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't, don't delude yourselves. You can't look to money to give you those things that only God can provide. You can't serve both. You can only serve me. So it's a false God always asking us to come and serve him. And then the last thing, money exposes the heart. Uh, right before this, Jesus makes this statement, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now we, we often think where your heart is, there will your treasure be, but Jesus is turning around. He says, if you want to know where a person's heart is, you can work from the outside in. And money is like a dipstick into the soul. You can look at what a person does with their money and you can tell what's going on inside of them. The reason for that is, if you think about it, you know what money is? It's sip simply a way of encapsulating ourselves and commoditizing it, right? Money is a commoditization of our energy, our time, our loves. It's an encapsulization of us. So when you can look at where a person puts their money, you're really looking in a sense at them because that money in one weird way is them. It, it, it's just in a way that it can be traded, commodified. I, I love 
those computer programs that allow you to track your spending. It's gotten easy over the years because you just download your bank statement and credit card and it categorizes and you can go in and make. So at the end of the year, I was doing this, I was sitting down, you know, whether you have Quicken or Brinktivity or money or whatever program, you sit down and you get a report and you can look at that report and you can tell where all the money went. You know, how, how much you spent on eating out. Gosh, how much you spent on entertainment, how much you gave, how much you earned, how much your mortgage was. What the t- and you can put it all together and it, it, it's kind of disturbing for me. Maybe it's not for you. What's really disturbing is while I was looking at it, I realized, you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at a map of my soul. This is telling me what my heart is like. Because Jesus is absolutely right. Where you put your treasure is where you put your heart. Wow. So what's that tell us? Look at what you spend and it tells you a whole lot about yourself. So if that's a, a, a theological framework, then how do we apply that into kind of the nitty gritty of our life? Well, let me give you five key practices. Um, actually, before I that, I want to read, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. I want to read a comment by Randy Alcarn because it kind of summarizes this, this part. He says, our perspective on and handling of money is a litmus test of our true character. It is an index of our spiritual life. Our stewardship of money tells a deep and consequential story. It forms our biography. In a sense, how we relate to money and possessions is the story of our lives. Wow. I was thinking about that and I realized, you know, people are much more willing to talk about their sex lives than they are about their finances. That's why. Because our money reveals our heart. Okay, so now, five principles uh, trying to apply this. Uh, The first one is this. By the way, these are not incredibly profound, but we need to be reminded, all right? The first is make and keep a budget. Proverbs 27, 23 through 24 says this. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. For riches do not endure forever and a crown is not secure for all generations. You think, wait a second, I don't have any flocks and I don't have any herds. What's the point? Well, they didn't have stocks and bonds or banks or even cash back in that day. So the way you encapsulated your wealth was in animals. And the more animals you had, the richer you were, and that was your wealth. And what he's saying in this Proverbs is, look, you've got to pay attention to your flocks. You've got to take care of them. You need to know which ones are alive, which ones are having babies. You need to care for, manage your flocks. Why? Because riches do not endure forever. In other words, he's saying, look, money is a limited resource. And because it's a limited resource, it has to be managed. Now, this becomes even more important if we begin to to realize that it's not just our money we're managing, it's God's money we're managing, right? Imagine you owned a business and you decided that you wanted to take a sabbatical from your business for a year, so you hired this person to come in and manage the business for you. And you go off and you travel the world for a year and you come back and you walk in a year later and you sit down with the guy you left in charge and you say, well, how'd my business do? And the guy says, well, not sure. You would say, what do you mean you're not sure? How much much money did you get? Well, I think maybe about, that would not cut it, would it? What were the expenses? Well, I don't know, I didn't really keep track. You would say, wait, wait a second. You don't know how much came in. You don't know how much went out. What would you do? What would you do? You'd fire the manager and you'd find a new one. (laughs) Folks, we're managers. If we don't know what's coming in, what's going out, we're not doing our job. There was a survey in Michigan of 8,000 people and they were asked about budgeting. Can, take a guess how many of those 8,000 people actually made a budget. 
Uh, that's high. <laughs> that would have been 80. 12 people had a budget. 12 people. Folks, we are foolish if we don't have a budget. We're not being good stewards if we don't know what's coming in and where it's going out. What a budget does is it gives you power to control your money. And you say, well, I'm not good at budgeting. You know, a bunch of my kids aren't good at budgeting either. But one of them really is. My daughter, Danielle, kind of likes spreadsheets. She's not a financial whiz, but she just likes, I think she has a control issue. She just likes to lay out stuff and, you know, know where to go. So she's made these spreadsheets. My other kids figured out she likes this stuff. We hate this stuff. So every year they call her up and say, Danielle, I need a budget. <laughs> they talk on the phone and, and she emails them a spreadsheet of their budget for the year. It's awesome. They're smart kids. <laughs> they may be dumb financially, but they're smart kids. <laughs> Because they know they need to keep track of where their stuff, where their money, where it goes. And by the way, it does absolutely no good to make a budget and a spreadsheet and then put it away in the desk, right? If you're gonna make a budget, you gotta follow the budget. Gotta follow the budget. I think one of the dangers of living in a credit art age is uh, we don't have a sense uh, of the nature of money because it's just numbers on a page. So it's easy for us to get out of line with our budget. At one point, early in our marriage, Barbara and I got these envelopes and we'd put cash in the envelopes and you had cash for entertainment or eating out and cash for gas and cash. And one of the things I discovered in that is how painful it is to spend money when it's cash. You know, when it's my credit card, I just give the credit card, it's a bunch of numbers on the page. But man, you know, I gave cash to Kyle and Gary. I wanted it back. Right, because it, 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 I get a sense of how much it really is, and it hurts, you know, to spend cash where it's easy to spend credit. Budget helps you control that, and if you have to, turn it, the numbers into cash so you have a sense of what it costs. So make and keep a budget. Second, get out of debt. Proverbs twenty-two seven says this: uh, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to to the lender. Um, what he's saying here is, look, when you borrow money, you are setting up a slave-master relationship. And when you borrow, you become the slave to the one you borrowed from. And if you think about it, what debt is, is really using your money to pay other people for the privilege of using theirs. It's doesn't always make a lot of sense. And, and let me give you some statistics. It's estimated that on average, 20% of Americans have maxed out their credit cards. 20%, one out of five. Americans pay an average of 15.07 interest on their credit cards, 15%. 25% of the population is in trouble with their credit card debt. One out of four. It's not managing credit card debt well. And get this, the average indebted credit card, in other words, the people who aren't paying it off every month, you know, some people use it out of convenience, pay it off every month. But the people who aren't paying it off every month, they begin to incur that debt. Guess what the average is? How far in debt they are? $16,000 in debt. That's huge. Now, I want to be honest with you. I don't think the Bible teaches us that taking a loan or going into debt is a sin. I don't think it teaches that loaning money to somebody is a sin. I don't think the Bible teaches that charging interest on the money you loan is a sin. Unless, and this is clear in the Old Testament, if you loan money to someone who is poor, you don't charge them interest. Because God cares about the poor. 
But if you're lending it to somebody, you know, who has the means to pay it back easily, then charging interest is okay. So the Bible doesn't say any of that sin. What the Bible does say is it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And other than for a mortgage that you've taken out with prudence and wisdom or a business loan that you've taken to operate a business with prudence and wisdom, all other debt should become with a, like a warning, like on a pack of cigarettes, the surgeon's general warning. This is hazardous to your health because it is. It's a dangerous thing. Because when you take out debt and you pay interest, not only are you losing, using the interest for the use of that money, but you're losing what that you've paid, the interest that money could have made by charging interest to somebody else. Every time you spend something, not only are you losing that money, but you're losing the potential that money had to earn you more. So in a sense, debt is kind of a crazy thing. So you gotta get out of debt. Let me give you... Uh, Four really quick things on how to get out of debt. First, ask yourself, how and why did I get here? You know, I was researching this last time. Well, most people end up in debt because they, they don't control their spending. They haven't learned the art of delayed gratification. And some of that's true. I mean, in, in our world, we teach people buy now, pay later. And we should pay now and buy later. And that makes a whole lot more sense, okay? So some people are in it because they've overspent. But honestly, most people go into bankruptcy because of medical bills, loss of job, some kind of crisis in their life. So you need to understand why you ended up where you did. And if you're spending too much, then you need to dig a little deeper and say, why am I spending so much? What's the motive? Am I buying a Lexus and an Audi? Not because they're great cars. You can own a Lexus and Audi and they're great cars. But if you're buying a Lexus and Audi because you want people to be impressed with who you are because the car you drive, man, you need to take a look at your heart. You want to live in a bigger house, not because you need a bigger house, but because you want to impress everybody that you can live in a bigger house. You need to look at your heart. Why are you spending what you're spending? And are you, you're spending more than you make. Why? What, what, what need are you? It goes back to this issue that money is a false God. We're looking for it in our stuff to give us things that only God can give. Second, you need to develop a plan. How are you going to get out of debt? And I like this idea where you list out all your debts and you begin with the smallest one. You kind of disregard what the interest is. You look at the smallest one. You, you maintain all the other ones and you, pay, you, you put all your extra money to pay off the smallest one. And then you take that and you go to the next smallest one. Use that because it gives you a sense of accomplishment and it, it forces you to, to develop a plan. And maybe in that plan, you need to have some accountability. Maybe you need to talk to the lenders and see if they'll give you some gift. The issue is, look, the scripture says in Psalm 37 that the wicked borrows and does not repay. In other words, there is a moral obligation for us to pay our debts. So we need to figure out how to do that, develop a plan. Uh, third, stop the overflow or the outflow. You know, if you're going to refill the bucket, you have to put a stop to the leaks which means you, you gotta lower your lifestyle. Maybe you stop eating out. Maybe you start buying used rather than new. Uh, maybe you cut back and shop at the thrift stores instead of, you know, the mall. Because you gotta stop the outflow. You gotta live on less. And then you gotta increase the inflow. I mean, if you're house poor and you bought too big a house, sell it. <laughs> it's a crazy way to live. Get something smaller. Uh, if you bought too expensive a car and the payments are, are killing you, sell it and buy something used. Get out of debt. If you've got to take another job, take another job. Because debt, debt will just kill you. It's craziness. So, Get a budget, get out of debt. The next one is to save faithfully. Proverbs 21, 20 says, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. 
We live hand to mouth, right? A lot of people do. And they don't save anything. They consume everything they bring in. Um, Forbes magazine did a report, a survey. This was just in September of 7,000 Americans that came out uh, this year. It's, these statistics blew me away. It says that 34% of Americans have zero saved. A third of us have zero saved in a savings account. And another 35% have less than 1,000 saved in a savings account. Now, now folks, I want you to think about this. How do you stay out of debt if you don't have any money in savings to handle an emergency that comes along? Your car breaks down. Kids need braces. Um, you have all kinds of li life happens. If you don't have savings, you don't have any alternative. Sometimes you end up going into debt. Only 15% have more than $10,000 in savings. 15%. Unbelievable. You got to save. And saving has huge power. Do you know that if when you're 22, you start saving $300 a month? Uh, and that's not much. It's far less, you know, a new car payment is what? Typically around five, four, $500, $300 a month. If you save just $300 a month from the time you're 22 to, to the time you're 62, 40 years, you will have saved a million dollars. A million dollars. So every time you go out and buy, step into your new car, I want you to think, this is my million dollar car that I'm driving around because I could have put it in savings and just 8% interest, a million bucks. And do you know, literally you would have put $142,000 in that investment and all the rest, 900,000 of it would come from the interest that the money makes. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, the power uh, of compound interest is unbelievable. So, save. Uh, I think it's a good rule of some, somebody came up with the notion that you should give 10%, save 10%, and live on 80%. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think one of the first things you should do is save an emergency fund. An emergency fund is like three months of your income to handle emergencies so you don't have to go in debt. So I think you save an emergency fund. Second, 30 years ago, I was in seminary, and we had a speaker in, uh, Fred Smith, who was this business guy. I couldn't believe that he said this in, in seminary. I probably shouldn't be saying it in church. But, but Fred said, after you save your emergency fund, what you need to save is your go-to-hell fund. And I thought, what is a go-to-hell fund? And Fred Smith was a businessman. He said, look, my wife and I decided we're going to save a year's income because I'm in a business where you're asked to do unethical things. And I want to be able to say, when my boss asks me to do something unethical, I can tell him, go to hell. Quit my job, and I'm going to be fine. There's a lot of wisdom to that. So you save an emergency fund, a go-to-hell fund, and what I like to call an opportunity fund, we, we, we label it as retirement. I don't think there's a, such a thing as retirement. You don't retire out of something. The goal of life is not to play golf and knit, all right? That's not the goal of life. You, you save for retirement for two reasons. One, so you don't become a burden to other people. And two, so you have opportunity to make a kingdom impact in different ways beyond yourself and beyond your work. And work has a kingdom impact too, but we get to a point where we need a change. We need to see that as an opportunity fund or a freedom fund. Because when you've saved that and you've been wise, you save not because you're afraid, but because you're wise, it gives you this, this ability to do all kinds of things for the kingdom. Ken or Arlene Fleury go to church here. They're only here about six months out of the year. They were missionaries in Brazil and then they retired. Their retirement is that they live in the States for three months, save up enough money to then go to Brazil and live in the slums for, slums for three months. Then they come back to the States and they work, save up a little money, more money, and then they head off to Mozambique 
for three months and, and do ministry with one of the missionaries there. That's retirement for them. Uh, and none of it was stepping back. It's just reinvesting their lives in different places. So I want to say. Fourth, give generously. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, one man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Um, we're, we're to give. And, and honestly, if you step back from that, that is a bit of, a, of an absurd notion. My son-in-law is French. He grew up in France. I mean, he's really, really French. Um, and in France, they have the state church, so nobody gives to churches because it's taken out as a tax if you're part of it. So we were talking about giving one day and, and he said, you know, I gotta I got be honest with you. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. You're going to give the money you earned away? Why would you do that? You earned that money for you and your family. It, this, is a, this is craziness. Because my daughter grew up in our family and she, she wants to give, you know, at least 10% away. And he's going, ah! <laughs> and I listened to him and I thought, you know, actually... He makes sense. Giving is kind of a stupid thing. Just from a human perspective, it, it, it makes no sense. But when you bring in God into the picture, it starts to make all kinds of sense. Now he, He's, over time, figured this giving thing out. But it raises the question, why do we give? One of the reasons we give is giving takes the power of money away. You know, if I, if I just give this money to you, it's kind of a silly thing, right? If I just give it to you. But, but what it says is, hey, there's no power. It's not a big deal. There's no power over me. Giving is freedom. Takes the power of money away. Second, we give because it is a declaration of ownership right? If I give, I'm saying I'm giving because God's commanded me to give and oh, my giving shows he owns it, not me. Giving I do because it's a manifestation of gratitude. It's a way of saying thank you. I realize everything I have is from your hand and is a blessing. And giving is a way of participating in the kingdom advance. It's an incredible privilege to give. So the question becomes, uh, how much should I give? Let me give you a one word answer that is probably true for most of us in here. All right, here it is. This is how much you should give. More. More. You've won the lottery. You're the richest people on the face of the earth. You should give more. And that's what the Bible teaches in the New Testament, that you give proportionally. The more you're given, the more is expected of you to give. You're to give, we're to give so much that it becomes sacrificial. In other words, it begins, we have to modify our lifestyle because we're giving so much. And I honestly believe that the, the least we should give, the very least we should give is 10%. I mean, that's the pattern in the Old Testament. They actually gave much more than that. But that was the expectation, at least 10%. And you say, well, Nick, 10% is a lot. I, I can't give 10%. I, I mean, that, that's, I, you know, that's a lot of money. I, I, mean, I mean, if I make 150, you're telling me to give $15,000? Yeah, at least. So I can't do that. Interesting statistic here. 50% of Christians feel financially insecure. They're scared, so they don't think they can give. In other words, 50%, half of us say, well, I, I'd like to do that, and I want to do that, but I can't do that because I don't, have, I don't make enough. And 85% feel they don't make enough to give generously. Folks, that's total hogwash. Look, if you went to work Monday and your boss came to you and said, hey, the company's struggling uh, for us to survive. We have to do some cutbacks. We're gonna let everybody keep their jobs, but we're gonna cut your salary by 10%. Would you survive? Oh yeah, you'd survive. You'd figure out how to live on 10% less. 
You would, I would, all of us would. Because we had to. We, we could figure it out if we wanted to. We really could. It's just sometimes we don't want to. So, okay, well, Nick, all right. Where do I give? I, I tell people, you know, you need to develop a portfolio. We spend all this time, energy, resources, money to develop a portfolio for our retirement. Our freedom fund, right? Our retirement is simply somewhere between for the 10 to last 20 years of our life. Wouldn't it be a lot wiser to develop a portfolio, not for the end of our life, but for all eternity? Wouldn't you think, ah, this is a much better use of resources and time to develop this portfolio that's gonna impact eternity rather than worrying about the last few years of my life? Yeah, so we need to, to spend time developing a giving portfolio. And in that portfolio, let me give you some things. Uh, we should give to the poor. Man, that's God's heart. He cares about the poor. The New Testament church was always concerned about the poor. They give to the poor. You, you should give to missions and kingdom causes because we're part of what? The kingdom advancing. And, and we should give to the local church, right? It's your church. Yeah. Fifth, spend wisely. First Corinthians 4.2 says, now there's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Um, I think when it comes to, to our money, we sometimes have a banana mentality. A banana mentality is this. We think, okay, God gave me the banana. I get to give some back to him. And the rest is mine. And I can do what I want with it. It's all his. And every decision you make with your money is a spiritual decision. What would it be like if on every check, every credit card payment, every electronic payment, you need a co-signature from the Holy Spirit? Would that change where your money went? Because every time you spend, you're not spending your money. You're spending his. Now he's gracious and he's good. And he says, you know, I know you need stuff to live on and it's okay to have some nice stuff. But realize, use your money to reflect my heart, my values, my perspective. Make your money have kingdom sense. So you budget, you get out of debt, you save, you give, and you spend wisely. I want to end with one other verse, uh, Luke chapter 12. We're going to skip that. Uh, Luke 12, 48 says this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That is a scary verse for people who live in the top 1%. Because it means someday we will have to give an account and God has high expectations. So my goal is not to make you feel guilty, it's to make you feel grateful and responsible. Let me give you the best financial advice you're ever gonna get in your entire life. Okay, I'm gonna give it to you right now. You probably wanna write it down. And it puts everything in perspective. Here it is, ready? You're going to die. Yep, that's it. In fact, I want you to say that. Say, I'm going to die, ready? I'm going to die. That puts it all in perspective. Now, I've sat with people who are taking their last breath, who are dying. And not once, in all the times I've been in those hospital rooms or in the hospice rooms or at home when people are dying, not once did everybody, anybody say to me, Nick, I wish I would have made more money. Never. Nobody's ever said, you know, I just didn't have enough stuff. Nobody said, oh, I wish I would have lived in a bigger, nicer, more comfortable house. Nobody ever said, oh, I, I, you know, I wish I could have driven a really nice car. 
No one has ever said that. Because when you die, none of it matters. When you die, the, the thing that matters is, did you know the God of the universe? Was he your Lord and master? And he was he Lord over your life and over your stuff. And at that moment, you're asking yourself, did I love him well? Did I serve him well? Did I use the stuff he entrusted to me well? And you ask, did I love others like he wanted me to? Was that person of compassion? Did I use my life to love God and love others? That's the question when you die. And we know that now. That's the question. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to quit. Um, couple resources for you. You'll be handed a card when you go out. It gives you a place to get on Right Now Media where you can get a Bible study on finances and some messages on finances. And Wayne Price, who runs FPU, Financial Peace University, has agreed that if we have 10 people sign up, he'll run it again. They just finished it, but he'll do it again. There's a sign up at the information table. Um, let's close our service with a benediction. Father, help us to be good trustees as your people, as your church. Help us understand and believe that it's all yours and we're given the privilege of managing it. Help us do that well. We pray for Christ's sake, for our sake, and all God's people said, amen.